if you would like to open up there. Coming to this chapter a month ago, when I was looking through what I would be teaching about, uh, it was apparent that this chapter would be one of the harder ones. It also has three important sections. There's a section on the biblical definitions of a marriage. There's a section on living as the church in the world of unbelievers. And then there's a section at the end that is theologically dense. So I hope that this chapter will be one that helps us to grow individually and then also as a group. So if you would follow along in verse 1 with me. This is a little high. Is it a little hot? hot. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Which, is God, which in God's sight is very precious. So, getting to the text, the first word that we see is likewise. And this points us back to what is this like. And last week we talked about how Christ is our example. As children we trace under his letters. We learn to live like Christ and that he is for us an example. So like him, there is this example of wives subjecting themselves to husbands. Now, Christ submitted himself to God the Father. And that's something that is fairly common that we've read that is a generally understood doctrine, that Christ submits himself to God the Father. And we look at that and we can say, well, of course, that's how it's supposed to go. That's the way it works. But something that's interesting is Christ also submitted to his parents, which if you had 12-year-olds, you might understand that they don't submit as well. Or if you once were a 12-year-old, which most of you have been, you remember that maybe that wasn't the, the most submitting time of your life. But in Luke, 5, or in Luke 2.51, we see Christ submits to his parents. And we see that this makes Mary, his mother, extremely happy and well-pleased. And when we look at the idea of what it means to submit to somebody over authority, we can understand Christ submitting to God. But Christ submitting to his parents, now, that's a little bit of a harder concept, that God would submit to these two. But he does so as an act of love, as an act of how he works himself into their relationship, and how he submits himself to them. <clears throat> now, as we get into the text, there are some hard things, there are some difficult things, but for us, I think Peter does two really great things, really fantastic things that he does, that allow us to approach the text and not dismiss it as something that is archaic or out of date or simply not usable for our modern thinking. The first one is, he leaves the details of what a, submis a submission up to the couple. He leaves those details up to the wife and the husband in their relationship, figuring out just how these verses are going to impact their life, their relationship their family. And we see more of that in verse 7, but it's also very clear. He tells that there is submission, but he leaves it open. He leaves it up to the couple. And the second thing he does is he leaves this idea of submission in the context of marriage. He does not state that every woman 
must obey every man. That's not the case. That would make no sense. He leaves the idea between the two people that it's most important to. The husband and the wife. It's something that they are to work out together. Something that they are to understand together and approach together. Not with external influencing influences telling them exactly how it works out. Oh, the man has to do this. The woman has to do this. He puts forward a simple solution and then hopefully believes that the couples will work it out. But he puts another word in here for the wives who, at the time, may not have believing husbands. And I know some women that this is the case for. There's probably some women that you know, some wives who their husband doesn't come to church or doesn't believe in church or will only go on the church retreat if there's cigars. That's an actual case. There was a man that did that. Take note, Christ uses the word even if, which seems to indicate to me that it's not the majority case for those that are here. For most of those women that are listening to this, most of them would be sitting next to their husbands or would be in the same room as their husbands. But to those in this particular situation, he does a play on words, which is ironic because the play on words is a play on the word, word. And some women have husbands who have been told by their wives facts about Christ. A wife who tells her husband, but this is what the Bible says, this is what the Bible says. And that stubborn-hearted man, as most of us may know or be ourselves, doesn't click with these words. Things you can say, and we as men can just let it go. But perhaps there are men who may be one without a word from Scripture, without a word from their wife. But instead, there might be men who can see and witness the gospel lived out in the life of their wife. And from that, be impacted and changed. I think that's where Peter's going here. Now, it was expected in that time that, in the first century, that women would generally follow the religious observances of their husbands. They would follow whatever temple god he was worshiping. They would follow when he would go to the temple. They would work out in that way. There were some cults and some temples that women would go to on their own, where they were just solely for women. But generally, the women would follow their husbands. And these men may believe when they see the bright and pure conduct of their Christian wives. Because remember, as a Christian, these women would have to go out of the religious things that they knew, the religious temples that they understood, the circle of friends that they knew. And they would be starting to go to Christian activities, Christian homes, meeting for worship on specific days of the week, meeting for worship and all-night prayer vigils. And this would create the separation. But it was the bright and pure conduct of their wives. If you look down at verse 2, the end of it, it says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The word respectful here is actually the word meaning light, as in the things above us. Light. Your light and pure conduct. Now, this word bright and brilliant and the word purity actually help us in a way because we can now draw a line. Most of the times when people say you're to submit to your government, people will add, unless they tell you to do something against the Bible. And it's a little harder to find exactly where the verse is that says that. There's some things in Peter says, that Peter says in Acts which help to understand, you know, fear God, not man, obey God, not man. 
But here Peter draws the line by saying, as a wife, it is your pure conduct that helps the unbelieving husband to see you. So in a way, if an unbelieving husband or even a believing husband has you commit something that is not pure, has you follow in something that is unbiblical, not morally acceptable, that is not a pure heart. That is not a pure conduct. So in a way, that's where I think Peter draws the line. Following and submitting, unless it will take away your purity. Then, your purity and your brightness is the thing that will help show the light to your husband when he sometimes is too stubborn. So, Peter moves on to the issue of external adornment and what this means in verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external. And I looked at the word adorning, and what it means is, is the word cosmos, which I realized that's kind of the same word as we have for the cosmos, like galaxy, the stars. How does it make sense fitting into the word adorning when I think of putting on a necklace? Well, in ancient Greek, they understood that the sun, the stars, and the planets and everything had their right order. They all had priorities. One would move around the other one. So I don't know exactly how much they knew about gravity, but they each were ordered in a proper way, in a right way. And this was called the cosmos, the way that the, the world was ordered. And in our lives, for women, this means that the way you order your priorities, the things that you value the most, that is your adorning. You should take upon yourself the internal person and not the external extras. It reminded me of a passage in Exodus 38.8 where the women who ministered at the temple, at the tabernacle when it was being built, they gave up their mirrors for the construction of a washing pool so that the priests and everybody else would be able to clean themselves. These women had brass mirrors. And brass isn't probably the best mirror as we would think of a mirror today, but once you polish it enough and clean it up and make it real nice, you can see yourself. And these women gave up the very thing that they would use to look at themselves, to beautify themselves, to say, am I ready to go to church? And they gave them up to the church, to the tabernacle. And I just think, I just think it was a good example. So having these priorities laid out, what you think is most important, it's important to know that Peter does not say that you are not to have anything to adorn yourself, whether a ring, an earring, a necklace, because if he did, then that would mean that you can't wear clothes. And I don't think that that's at all where he's going with that. So instead, the priority is to be on who you are as a daughter of God. The beautiful inward personality, which Peter also calls imperishable. We talked about imperishable a couple weeks ago. He's saying that this inward lady will continue on for eternity. And Peter hopes that the wives who are reading this would consider that. He adds gentle and quiet to this list, and I want to point out that it's not silence that he says, that a woman must be silent in this case in the relationship. But quiet gives the impression of one that is not pushy or demanding of one's own ways. But then he moves on to Sarah in verses 5 to 6. 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So he moves on to this example of Sarah. But I imagine that he also has other women in mind, possibly his own mother, possibly the mother-in-law from the Gospels. His mother-in-law lived with him and his wife. We read about them going to his house where she was laid up sick. And then, at the very least, maybe his own wife. And he notes how these holy women hoped in God. This word, hoped, means something that they found comfort in distress, in hard times, in struggling. They hoped in God, depended on him. They looked to him to work through their husbands, to work through their family, for the good of their home, for the good of their loved ones. And they hoped in God. Like Sarah, the girl who married Abraham and left her family, her friends, the things that were familiar to her, lived in a place that she was foreign to. She lived life with Abraham, who isn't the most godly picture of what a husband should be like. She was without children until she was 90, and she was considered too old to bear any. Yet Peter tells us that she hoped in God, even with the present struggles, even with probably one of the more stubborn husbands. But maybe the first century readers, what about them? The women in the crowds in the churches who would have husbands who, as Christians, would face blacklisting in their trades. Now it's hard to get work. They would face ridicule from non-Christian peers. Within the next decade, a very serious persecution for their beliefs. So how would these women raise their children? How would they keep afloat? If they rented homes, would their tenant kick them out? Or would their landlord kick them out? Leaving them to the mercy of the streets? Would their husbands go back on their faith and thereby ask them to do the same? Peter knows the struggles that these women are facing. And he desires them to hope in God, to find comfort in this world from God. And for me, personally, the situation and these verses speak very loudly to my family. As we await the birth of our first son, his complications are many. And we have to deepen our comfort in God. We depend on comfort. There's a possibility that he'll have to work through these complications for the rest of his life. Now, we wonder... How does this impact us going into missions? Where are we going to live? How does this impact what we're going to do? What do we do to keep them healthy, to raise our child? What do we do? And all these questions bear down on us in life. And I think my wife, Bailey, has done a brilliant job in the sense of having a bright faith that impacts the husband's faith. She encourages me to lead better. The way that she's grown in the past trials and tribulations that we've been facing and the struggles is fantastic. She encourages me to work harder and to take verse 7 even more fully, understanding it and realizing it has a huge importance in my life. Peter devotes six verses to women, and then the seventh verse is one that speaks to men, and it speaks very loudly to us. She helps me to look to the terrors 
as verse, five, as verse 6 says it. You are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. She helps me to look to those fears and feel comforted as we both submit to God and hope in him in these times of the unknown and the struggles. And husbands, this next section would have come from the pen of a husband who knows what it's like to make hard choices, to lead in times of uncertainty. From the scriptures, we know that Peter was a traveling apostle of sorts, a traveling missionary. He would go from church to church, sending letters, greeting people, living with people, kind of just as a traveling apostle. apostle. Similar to Paul, except Peter took funding and food from the churches that he visited. They helped support him. And he depended on them for his food and his clothing and shelter for the night. But there were also things for his wife. She followed him and traveled with him. It wasn't just himself that he was concerned about, but her as well. Providing for her was also something that he had to worry about. And I think from this comes verse 7. Husbands are to live with their wives in a knowledgeable way. Let's read that verse. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So husbands are to live with their wives in a knowledgeable way, in an understanding way, seeking to know her and assist her in the Christian walk. And this is where the working out how submission and headship work in your relationship. This is where you are to talk to each other. Husbands, you are to listen. And you're to understand how the relationship between you can really grow, magnify God, and exalt him. So, as Peter does this, I will as well, and leave the details open to those of you to figure that out and work those out. As you work best, husbands, understanding the way your wife works. The things that you say that will upset her, don't say those. And in a way, it's clear from 1 Corinthians one twenty six that God exalts the humble. And he cares for the humble people. When husbands show honor, when they show love, when they build their wives up, when they humble themselves and do not demand to be served, and definitely do not demand to be submitted to, but instead we are compassionate. When wives let their husbands lead, when they help and when they live pure lives, they humble themselves as well and are blessed for it. It's kind of like rowing a boat. If you've ever had a small raft with just you and another person, you've realized the dynamics of what rowing a boat is like. So say I dominate the raft and I row really hard on my side and the person on the other side can't row as hard. What happens is we'll start to spin. We'll get dizzy. We won't go anywhere and eventually we'll be ready to call it quits. Now imagine that both of us pedal, well, row, as hard as we can, sweating profusely, pushing, just trying to assert ourselves. You might go somewhere, a little zigzaggy, but eventually you'll get tired, and eventually you'll be ready to call it quits. Now if you can imagine with me a raft that had a oar, and this oar, instead of Every time you rowed on your side, it would row on the other side. And I think this is an imaginary picture of what it looks like for husbands and wives. Something I think Peter would have been able to get at. 
Husbands are to humble ourselves. We are to work through what it means to support our wives, what it means to uplift them and hold them and honor them, love them, care for them. And by so doing, if we row for them, and wives row for husbands, each of us learning to be humble, setting ourselves aside, and instead working for the other person, wanting the very best for them. Find the right pace, and eventually you'll move forward, working together as a team, supporting each other. When we look at this passage, Peter also calls women the weaker vessel, which is, seems kind of strong. And it's dangerous water here if we look at it in our modern times, but it's not clear exactly what ways Peter means by weakness. It could be physical, a warning to abusive and overbearing husbands. It could be a weakness in authority, a warning to men who lord themselves over their wives. Or it could be emotional, a warning to men who play on the nature of a woman and abuse her and abuse their wives. But this word, vessel, gives us a clear understanding that Peter is relating to all men everywhere. No matter what the sex is, we are all creations of God and need to be honored as his vessel. And for us men, we need to understand that women are not a second-class Christian. In the Jewish temple, there was an area called the woman's court, and this was where the women would go. And this is where they would hold their religious events. And then they wouldn't be allowed into the deeper portions, which were the men would be. And Peter is here saying, by calling women co-heirs, equal heirs, he's breaking down that wall of separation and saying, no, before God, in view of your salvation, in view of your spiritual importance, in view of how much God will be giving you for eternity, we are equal men and women. And for the men, this is something that they need to hear, and something that sometimes we need to hear as well. To treat women with respect, to treat women with love and compassion, honoring your wives. To sum up this verse, he reminds the readers, those men, that if they are abusive in this way, if they are taking over their wives, if they are overbearing, they do not lead well, that their prayers will be hindered. And as the head of a household, this is pretty big if your prayers are hindered. This is the man who yells at his wife to tell her to get ready for church, to come to church to pray. There's something missing there. There's something that isn't taking place. But instead, if we as husbands desire to grow in our own relationship with God, there's these lists of things that we need to understand about living with women and our wives. You can't joke with a girl the way you can joke with a guy. It's not smart at all. So moving on to verses 8 to 10, we read, Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called so that you may attain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So back in verse 8, this list of attributes is actually a pretty great list. When you look at it, there's somewhat of a sense of poetry that Peter here is throwing out. This fisherman that has a uh, Shakespearean heart a little bit, he starts to do something really interesting. If you read the words, and I think I have a slide. Wayne, can I get the next slide? This is, again, for the visual learners out there. You know who you are. So we'll look at the five words that he uses here, or the five Greek words that we look at as unity of mind. And then look to the end of the chapter, or the verse. It says, a humble mind. So we see that being harmonious in mind and also being humble, humble-minded, the way you think, these are connected. These are emotional things. Then we also see that he calls us to be sympathetic and then compassionate. And both of these words have, have the words that mean emotional or in your emotions. In fact, the word compassionate actually means good-boweled because that's where the seat of emotions, when this was written, that's where they would think. We kind of say, you know, from the heart. They would say, I have a strong feeling, a deep, intense feeling of emotional Love. And all these things come together and lead into what it means to be brotherly, what it means to love one another as a congregation. We can see that the first two are us with each other, in synergy, working together. And then the other two are working for each other, being selfless, kind of in the idea of a marriage relationship, working together and then also caring for the other person. After this list, he quotes from Psalms 33 and 34, which was our call to worship. And it's a very straightforward set of verses. Summed up, it also progresses his train of thought, going from the past few verses to the next few verses. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Being afraid of those who harm for righteousness' sake, being afraid of the intimidation of non-Christians, is kind of where Abraham failed. In the fear of leaders, twice he led his wife into sin by calling her his sister instead of his wife in order to avoid being killed. Remember I said Abraham's probably not the best husband to look forward to? Well, both times he receives a rebuke from the pagans. The men that come to him and say, we thought you were God's chosen, and yet you would do something like this. Peter's readers are instead to look to Christ, set him apart in our hearts so that we can find, again, that comfort and that hope that we mentioned earlier. He is concerned with converting those who don't believe. He is concerned with Christians presenting themselves in a way that makes our faith attractive. 
in a way that makes us able to say to those that we work with, I have hope because of this. I have hope because of these scriptures. I have hope because of the compassion that I feel in church. I have hope because there are people who will support me if I fall. He is concerned with all these things. And if we look to Acts 40-42, to and there's other verses in Acts where Peter himself is defending the hope that he has, his faith. A bunch of these verses we looked at, I like to emphasize how, how much Peter is, has learned and how a lot of what he writes is through what he, he has learned. And if we look in Acts, we can see he's brought before governors. He's brought before people who whip and abuse and put him in prison. And yet he continually shows and explains why he has this hope. He defends his faith because he saw Christ. He saw Christ on earth and he saw Christ ascend. He saw Christ transfigured. And there's no way that he's going to go back on that and just forget the greatness of those moments. So, verses 16 to 18. This is important. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if, you, if it should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In defending our reasons that we have hope in Christ, Peter reminds us that a clear and good conscience is a great place to start with. Too many times the feeling of remorse or guilt have stopped me from witnessing. And I wonder if this is a familiar feeling to you as well. How can I speak to someone about how I hope in God when it seems like I don't look anything different from them other than I don't sleep in on Sunday? The point is clear that living in sin, having an unclean conscience as a Christian, will hinder the way you speak to non-Christians, will hinder your witness to them. And also, even if we do have a clear conscience, not that we're perfect, understanding that we do fall, but if we have a clear conscience in approaching God and trying to live this life for Him, we can still present the gospel in a harsh and disrespectful way. We can do damage just the same. I visited a few friends in Penn State a couple years ago, and there was a preacher on campus, one of the guys that sets up a box and a microphone and stands at the corner where all the students meet and starts yelling things from the Bible. And not that I'm against open-air evangelism or having a speaker to project your voice, obviously. Peter himself preached against the sin in people's lives and told them to repent. But what made me ashamed of this man and what brings this verse alive was the fact that he was very angry, very upset. Not just projecting his voice, but he was mad at the people around him. And there were also some Christian groups on campus that had come to the event because they know this guy's coming in. And they were there trying to talk to people who would ask this man questions, and he would yell back at them. And I saw this girl take aside a, a, a man, I forget. She took a student aside, and she started talking to him about the questions he was asking, trying to explain the gospel to him. And the preacher up on the box yelled at her, asked her what kind of translation she used. 
And she told him, and he said, that's not the Bible. She's, you're going to send this man to hell if you try to use that translation. And he started railing on these Christian groups that were trying to help him, trying to help bring people into Christ because they were using a different translation than his. But to Peter's readers, they don't have microphones. They may not have had the best language skills, but it was their good conduct, the way that they lived their life, that is, Peter says, is the best sermon. When the campus security shows up to this man, it's not because of Christ that he is suffering. It's not because of his righteousness. It's because he's not acting like a Christian. He's acting like a jerk. And that's not something that, we're, that we are supposed to have able to be said about us when we present the gospel to people. We are to present it in a way that shows love and compassion and caring. <clears throat> so as we read verse 18, Peter bridges the conversation again back to Christ, his sacrifice for us, and this act that makes us just in the eyes of God, the gospel. Peter continually will throw it in there. But as we move on to 19 and 20, these are some of the hardest verses to interpret in the Bible. Not so much hard as some of the first verses that we looked at, as people will have ideas or expectations for those, but these verses are very dense theologically. Plenty of ink has been spilled in trying to understand what they mean. Just these few verses, books have been written. And when I enjoy, however, looking at this passage, and as a theology nerd, I kind of geek out and get to read all these old writings and get to read all these things, I realize that I don't want to spend too much time on it. So I have a document that I've worked on, kind of like last week. Um, I don't want to spend too much time going into the different interpretations or ideas, but I'll post this document on our site. And if you would like to look at this, there's also other, adv other advice, other writers, uh, other books, other things you can read that talk about what these verses mean. And hopefully on that document, I'll be able to give a more open view, and you'll be able to look into different things to understand exactly what you believe. So I'll read the verses, and maybe you'll understand what I'm talking about. Verse 19 to 20. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you as a removal of dirt from the body, or not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So, I'll explain three main views for this passage. Three main understandings, classical interpretations. Number one is that Christ, in his spirit, spoke through Noah in the time that Noah was building the ark to those people on the earth who were alive during the flood. All right? Kind of confusing. There's another one. Number two, Christ, after his death but before his resurrection, went to a holding place for those people who died in the flood and proclaimed to them. Different interpretations will say that he either proclaimed 
victory over them, or he claimed the ability for them to repent after death. And then the third view, and this is the majority view, Christ after his death, but before his resurrection, went to the place where the fallen angels, which had children with women from the Old Testament, were held and proclaimed his victory over death and his soon-to-occur resurrection over all powers and authorities. And I hope you're starting to understand why I think this is a very confusing verse and why so many people have field days with what it means. I believe the first one, that Christ in his spirit spoke through Noah. And if you want to look at the document that I'll be posting, feel free to look at that and try to understand or just enjoy searching the scriptures and enjoy searching and trying to piece everything together. But there's a couple reasons that I think the first interpretation makes more sense, that this was Christ's spirit preaching through Noah to the people around him when the ark was being built. I picked this interpretation after holding some of the others, holding some of the other views, looking at them and going, yeah, that makes sense. No, maybe not, and tossing and turning around what I thought. But the analogies between Noah and the first century church, and in a way, us as a church as well, kind of seem to make it clear why Peter would go this route. Wayne Grudem gives a list of these similarities. Number one, Noah's family was a minority of believers. The text says eight people, surrounded by a majority of those who scoffed at them and ridiculed their faith. Number two, Noah was righteous in the midst of those who were not. As Peter reminds us and the church, this is how we are to live, being righteous in the midst of people who aren't. Number three, Noah spoke righteousness. Second Peter calls him a preacher of righteousness. He spoke to those around him, told them about what God was doing. And Peter also tells the church to preach righteously, not just with words, but also with our conduct, and not just with a clean conscience, but also with patience and understanding and boldness. Number four, Noah knew of the judgment that was coming, of the flood that was coming, and he warned those around him. And likewise, Peter, as we're told by him in Second Peter, knows that there's a judgment coming too, not by water, but by fire. And this is the judgment that the church is to warn those around us about. Number five, also, something that I hope in, something that I, I don't know if I could say like or enjoy, but something that, to me, glorifies God. After this judgment, it was kept in waiting, waiting as Noah built the ark, waiting as more people heard, waiting as they could be saved. 2,000 years since Peter wrote this, God is still waiting, as Peter told his readers, that he is coming back soon and the judgment will take place. But yet God is still patiently waiting, waiting for your brother, waiting for your parents, your co-worker, your spouse, your unborn child. Lastly, in the flood, only a few were saved. And Peter's readers, as a minority, would have understood this, that they were saved. They, even though they were a few, 
we're still saved, much like Noah. For me, however, I land on this interpretation mainly based on last week's message, something about the idea that Christ is to be our example. We are to follow him, we are to live like him, we are to learn how he lived life, how he presented the gospel, how he cared for people, how he had compassion, and we're to follow that. But if he went to the fallen angels, I don't know how I'm supposed to follow that example. If he went to those who had already died and proclaimed something to them, am I to practice black magic and speak to the dead? I don't think so. But yet if Christ spoke through Noah, if Noah allowed the words of Christ, the words of the truth, to be spoken through him, righteousness, forgiveness, and life to those around him in a time when upcoming judgment would happen, that's an example I can follow. That's an example the readers of Peter's letter in the first century can follow, and that's an example that we can follow as well with those around us, speaking to them about Christ. And to this we were called. To this we as Christians were chosen and picked because there's things that you can do and say which are things that I can't do or say. And there are ways and people that you can reach that I can't reach people you work with, your family. There are people that each of us specifically can talk to, can live a Christian life in front of. And we may be the only means of saving them from the coming judgment in the sense of telling them about Christ. Christ saves them, but we are his mouthpiece. We are like Noah, standing in the midst of people who don't believe. And hopefully... I wish I could encourage the church here that we shall preach righteousness as well, preach love and compassion and and caring, and hopefully those things come through. Then Peter moves on to baptism and the example of baptism, because like the flood, there's water involved. Like the flood, we go under, and like the flood, Noah is saved through the flood because of the ark. And so are we saved to death through baptism, through becoming Christians, in that symbol of going into the water and then rising as a new creation, making our appeal to God to live and follow through with those commands, follow through with whatever it was that we said as our testimony of now believing in Christ when we were baptized. For taking the name of Christ upon you and over your life becomes a clear outward symbol in baptism of an inward reality of what you're going through, what you're experiencing. And from that point on, embracing this life and thinking on Christ daily is something that we should care about. But it can be fake. Again, with a conscience that is not good. To this, we stand condemned if we take our baptism oath, throw it overboard. And Peter's writing in Acts not Peter's writing, but in Acts, Peter baptizes a man, and this man tries to take the Holy Spirit and say, well, with this I can baptize others, and he believes he can make a lot of money out of doing the things that the apostles are doing. And Peter condemns him harshly, saying, what is this baptism? This isn't, this isn't what baptism is for. Clear your heart, repent, understand what Christ has done. Bringing the focus back to what Peter views as most important, he ends with Christ. In a glorious place, in a beautiful place, 
our King reigning on high, with which we will be with Him, with which we will be with Him, one day, eventually. Hopefully, surrounded by those that He waited for, and those that we spoke to and showed the way. At the valued right hand of God, with all the powers subjected to Him, Peter's emphasis is a marching order in this chapter with the idea that we are to let the world know the hope that is in us. And if you've forgotten that hope, feel like it has slipped away, feel like it's left you with the fear of the world, with the fear of the anxieties and the things closing in, with the fears that the people in the first century, the readers, would have felt. I would ask that you come to this table and renew your hope in God. Renew that comfort in distress that he gave to all those in the Old Testament and to us now and to Peter and to the apostles and to the millions who have read this from when he wrote it. I tell you that this day he waits. God is waiting for us. We're still here. He hasn't returned yet. And if you haven't taken him on as Lord or as a Savior, he is patiently, patiently enduring, hoping that by somebody's words, maybe mine, maybe a co-worker's, by somebody's words that you would believe. I don't know how long he'll be waiting, but I hope you may feel a tug to come and meet him and be baptized into that new life. We're going to begin taking communion here. After we pray, we will embrace this relationship with Christ. The fact that we do have, through his death and through his resurrection, new life. We have hope in the very essential essence of the word. Comfort when we lose a job. Comfort when we feel alone. Comfort when our child has issues that we can't do anything about. Comfort when our parents are getting old and we don't know what to do. Comfort when we're getting old and things start hurting that never hurt before. We have comfort in the eternal things that we have waiting for us. Please pray with me. Father, we hope that this message will help us to understand more about you and ourselves. We hope that we would learn your word, to understand it, to grasp it, to live it out much better. We hope that the hard things um, would meet a softened heart, whether it's uh, wives or husbands or all of us in this congregation, that we would approach you and indeed seek to have a long life living under your guidance, living under your love. We pray for this communion. We thank you for giving us such a sacrifice that we are able to have new life. We pray that our hearts would be calm, comforted, our thoughts would be pure, our conscience would be good, willing to tell others about the glorious grace that you have bestowed upon us. In your name, amen.